I'm Adam Seafew. And I'm Scott Stern. And we are here with another episode of S2D, the Symptom to Diagnosis podcast. This podcast teaches evidence-based strategies for diagnosing common medical symptoms. We begin each episode with a case unknown to one of us. We then discuss five high-yield features that help to accurately diagnose the cause of the symptom at hand. We then return to our case before finishing up with a discussion of fingerprints, common misconceptions, pet peeves, and other random pearls of knowledge pertaining to the weak symptom. A reminder that the cases that we discuss are drawn from our clinical experiences, but because protecting patient privacy is part of our oath, we never discuss actual patients, and most cases are composites. Well, our topic this week, Adam, is acute diarrhea, and I believe you're the expert of the day. And if my notes serve me correctly, you have a case to present to me. Is that correct? Yes. We have to control ourselves so we don't have like, you know, two old guys making poop jokes for 30 minutes. <laughs> okay, I'll do my best. Okay. We won't let this run on and on. Good. <laughs> Good start. Sorry. Okay. I'm going to get personal today. Okay. I, re I recently changed the talk I give to our students to one that I call Acute Diarrhea, A Personal Journey. Ooh, that's too bad. <laughs> so here's a case of acute diarrhea that affected me. Okay. Uh, so this was about two years ago, a little more than two years ago. I had my regular day. It was a Tuesday um, in December. I'll tell you everything about it. And I was feeling fine. Get home, I have dinner. We have salad and garlic bread every Tuesday night for dinner, in case you're interested. Okay. And about halfway through dinner, I just start feeling terrible. I'm like sweaty, sort of like hot flashes, a little bit achy, and start having almost like, you know, reflux indigestion symptoms, okay? I was like, God, I just feel terrible. I go to sleep, you know, about half an hour later, probably eight o'clock at night. And about midnight, I wake up just vomiting okay and i think i throw up four times the last time i actually fell down on the way to the bathroom i don't know if i vagal or if i was hypovolemic or whatever wow but i you know had to crawl to the toilet to throw up wow by morning i wake up and vomiting's all gone i'm not even really any nauseous anymore but then i'm having you know watery diarrhea um i don't know you know four five six episodes okay and um that gets me to about noon the next day. So maybe I'll stop there and hear what your thoughts are. Okay, well, that's interesting. So, you know, it's clearly acute. Uh, you didn't mention any symptoms prior, but I'm gonna assume from the, your description is that this came out of the blue and that your bowel movements before that were normal. Absolutely. Did you have a fever? Uh, I did have a fever that night. Um, so, you know, when I was having the vomiting and everything, actually by morning when the vomiting had stopped and I was just down to diarrhea, I didn't have any fever at that and point. Did you measure your fever? I did, actually. And what were you? I was, you know, whatever, 100, not, not high. So we have an acute diarrheal illness associated with fever, low grade, and vomiting. Um, it clearly sounds obviously infectious rather than the non-infectious causes. Uh, you didn't mention blood in your stool. Did you have blood in your stool? Nope. Had you had any travel? Nope. Had you had any recent antibiotics? Nope. So without any antibiotics and travel, we've decreased the risk of C. diff and we've decreased the risk of bacterial infections, although bacterial infections can be foodborne in the United States as well. So that's a possibility. Salmonella, Shigella, Campylobacter being the most common. Um, 
It does not sound like simple food poisoning that is, you know, staph aureus and clostridium perfringens or bacillus cereus because there's a lot of diarrhea associated with it and it's persisting a bit longer than those tend to persist. So um, right now, the most likely things would be either a virus, uh, norovirus, or um, or Salmonella shigella campylobacter with less common things being Yersinia. Uh, those would be um, high on my list at this point in time. Is there anybody else sick? Nobody else is sick. This is just me. Nobody else is sick. Um, I'm going to go with that to start. Okay. That's actually, it's weird to say. That's actually what I was thinking, even (laughs) though, you know, it was me. And obviously, I didn't go to the doctor. I actually dragged myself in to do an exam review for the students the next day because I was like, ah, it's probably more hassle to cancel it than it is to do it. And I remember when people were asking questions, I was like, ah, can you just stop asking questions? I just want to go home and go back to bed. Um, One other interesting thing which sort of threw me off a little bit, and the reason I remember it was Tuesday is because I had clinic Tuesday morning and it got to be lunchtime and I'd forgotten my lunch. I always bring a yogurt and granola for lunch. And so I went to Grand Rounds and I had a tuna sandwich. And it wasn't a terribly good tuna sandwich, but it wasn't like a spoiled tuna sandwich. So I kind of wondered, was it from that? But I was thinking, this has got to be neurovirus, you know, such classic, you know, abrupt onset, severe well, it certainly sounds like that. I mean, I think at this point, the most common approach would be to watch and see what happens. You know, I would reevaluate you if you either got so profoundly dehydrated that you need it, um, or if it started to get bloody, which it doesn't have to be, or if you start getting high fevers, and got we'll come back to that later, and, or you just don't get better. I mean, if it we're right about that, you shouldn't have high fevers and you should improve over, you know, two to three days, yeah. kind of around there. And if you're not getting better, we need to start right. looking. Yeah, with neurovirus, that's usually what I tell people is that, you know, you can sort of expect 24 hours of diarrhea and then you'll probably feel kind of crappy for another 24 hours and then you'll probably be better and able to go back to work. So why don't we leave the case then for a little bit and you can do us a, give us a deep dive into the ways that we can approach diarrhea and then we'll come back to the case. How's that sound? Sure, sure. So I have our classic five points. Um, point one, really easy, is just the framework I use when I'm thinking about this. And that is to think of your patients in three groups, okay? Gastroenteritis, which is like the patient we just saw, someone who basically has an infection of the whole bowel. So you'll get nausea, uh, vomiting, stomach upset, you know, indigestion, and then diarrhea, usually watery diarrhea. Dysentery, which is really an infection of the colon, right? So you'll see bloody stools, you'll see tenesmus, which I always describe as kind of dry heaves of the bowel, right? You go running to the bathroom and you put out like two tablespoons of, you know, what? pus and That's blood and stool. <laughs> and then the last is, is non-infectious. Um, and we'll talk more about non-infectious, I think, as the podcast goes on. Um, but non-infectious diarrhea is diarrhea but with no infectious symptoms. So certainly no fevers. Usually people actually feel pretty well, but they just have the diarrhea. Um, I try to get people away from like trying to make a diagnosis of a specific organism because you really can't do that clinically. And it's more to kind of group it into these categories because that really helps you to think about how you're going to test and how you're going to treat. Great. Okay. So I I think that's right. And so it certainly sounds like you were in the infectious category, as we said. Right. Really sounds like infectious gastroenteritis. Right. right? 
Totally. Um, and so then your second point? So my second point is is if it's non-infectious, so if you have someone who, who comes in and they say, boy, you know, for the last three, four, five days, I've been having diarrhea, I really feel fine. Maybe I get a little bit of cramping before I move my bowels, but otherwise, you know, I'm okay. And so you think that's a non-infectious cause. You need to get right into considering uh, the causes of non-infectious diarrhea. And that's because I always find that it's much easier to figure that out right when it starts. If you wait sort of a couple of weeks, then often the exposures and the causes of the non-infectious diarrhea are going to be really hard to figure out because they've kind of become part of the person's usual um, habits or diet. And so the things I think about, and I sort of think about them in groups, is I think about um, medications and other ingestible substances, and I consider these kind of over-the-counter medications, things that people do for themselves. And so that might be sorbitol, which you'll find in like gums, sugar-free gums, mints, even pill fillers, like people who do, you know, a handful of supplements every day. You know, you might have some huge pill that, you know, for B12, and a milligram of that's B12, and the rest of it is sorbitol, right? Um, magnesium-containing medications, so certainly nutritional supplements, antacids, a lot of magnesium, that'll do it. Um, malabsorption, and the most common forms of malabsorption are lactose intolerance that we all develop with time, um, and pancreatic insufficiency, which often in people with pancreatic insufficiency, you know, will progress slowly, but will eventually get to some point that people start having symptoms from it. Um, that's often people who don't have, like, you know, a whole medical history of acute pancreatitis, but maybe they've been a drinker in the past. And if you ask them, they'll say, of course I had some episodes where I had really bad abdominal pain. I couldn't really eat for a couple of days. Right, right. Um, prescription medications. I think the ones that we probably see most are metformin, antibiotics, certainly colchicine. We don't use a lot of DIG anymore, but digoxin used to be a real cause. And then lastly, irritable bowel syndrome. The really irritable bowel syndrome you know, fairly easy diagnosis because it's usually a real lifelong history. Yeah, you know, it's really helpful because I have to admit, I often don't dig into many of these unless it goes on for a while. Yeah. And I think that you're right, that the risk is, especially if it was a dietary change, it actually is no longer noticeable. So like all of a sudden you start eating more yogurt. Yeah. You didn't really think that, you know, you changed your diet a little bit. Three weeks later, you're eating yogurt all the time right. and you don't remember anymore right. that you started the yogurt, right? And I also think it's important to think about IBS because people with IBS have had chronic symptoms forever, but it's often intermittent yeah. chronic symptoms. And yeah. they might not, until you bring it out of them, they might not say, oh, I've had like episodes like this a couple of times a year for 15 years. And they describe it as an acute episode. So I really think that's very helpful. That's a great point. You have to ask the question, you know, and you say like, you know, have you had a, I don't know, a sensitive stomach, you know, a sensitive bowel, a twitchy bowel, whatever, however people are going to describe and the, it. And the last thing I'd emphasize you say is you really, whenever you ask about medications, you really have to not only ask in general what they're taking, but specifics. I've had people even who are physicians, I say, any new medications? And they say, no. And I say, have you been on antibiotics recently? And they say, oh, yeah. And I'm like, really? The yeah. antibiotic wasn't a medication? Yeah. I have a great story about non-infectious diarrhea, actually, which the patient figured out, not me older man um, in his 70s, uh, and I saw him a few times, and I was like, you know, working it up, scheduling him for a colonoscopy, couldn't figure out what was going on. And then he says, you know, I realized that this started when I started taking flying lessons. And I was like, well, that means nothing to me. 
And the entire time I'm flying, I'm popping these these sugar-free mints that I chew. And I looked it up and I found it. And I was like, oh, I feel like such an idiot. You know, I know this stuff. But That's I didn't such get a it. great story. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> he was a very cool guy. All right. What's your next point? So that's non-infectious. Going to move on to gastroenteritis. Uh, gastroenteritis, pretty easy. In adults, it's usually viral, generally norovirus. Adults can get rotavirus, but less commonly. You know, it's usually kids. These days with kids getting vaccinated, there's even less of it. And the one thing to remember about norovirus is that we usually think about norovirus being sort of you know, caught from somebody else, right? Uh, somebody else has it, you touch them, they haven't washed their hands very well, um, or you get it off a surface. But in fact, the majority of, of foodborne diarrhea in the United States is norovirus. And norovirus is just so common that even though norovirus is usually acquired kind of hand to hand, it also leads the list of um, foodborne illnesses. Right. Actually, many of the even bacterial pathogens are are almost always foodborne, right? Absolutely. And often very contagious with small numbers of right. organisms required. Right. right. And I feel like, though, you know, we think of like if I said, what's the cause of foodborne diarrhea? You'd say, as you said at the beginning, you'd say, oh, clostridium, staph, salmonella, you know, be serious. And that's like all true. And those those causes are overwhelmingly from food but they just tend to make up a whole lot less of the diarrhea overall. All right. So uh, next, what's what do you have in our fourth? So wait, before I get to four, let me finish okay. off three. Sorry. So Sorry. talk about gastroenteritis. And gastroenteritis, as I said, is usually viral. But as you mentioned, it can certainly be bacterial. So you got to remember all the common causes. Campylobacter, Shigella, Salmonella, E. coli. These days, certainly C. diff. Most of the time... Those bacterial gastroenteritises, enterides, however, whatever you want to call them, those don't need treatment. So you don't get crazy about working them up initially, right? You're going to wait. If the person doesn't get better, then you're going to get into working it up. A lot of those have very stereotypical presentations, but you really can't figure it out just from the clinical presentation. Well, the only thing I'd add to that, though, is if they're sicker. I'm sure you'd agree, but tell me if not. The viral gastroenterides, you know, often come like uh, your description with diarrhea, and some cramping associated with the diarrhea, but high fever, serious systemic symptoms, and a lot of pain are not really typical of those. So there are clues even in the initial presentation without a prolonged course that might suggest those. Right. I think the thing which is complicated about it is that certainly people who are going to get sick you know, with an, an acute infectious diarrheal illness are going to have a bacterial gastroenteritis, right? Right. The people, as you say, who have high fever, lots of pain, real dehydration, um, absolutely. But a lot of people with these aren't very sick, right? Right. Um, they have four days of salmonella and it goes away. Or what's really confusing is things like Campylobacter. You know, the stereotypic presentation of Campylobacter is, you know, a couple of days of kind of nonspecific viral symptoms. And then uh, you know, a couple of days of real diarrhea, and then sometimes progressing to dysentery. And depending on when you see those people, you may have a completely different kind of thought diagnosis. Should we talk about my Campylobacter later when you're done with your story? <laughs> sure. We'll see how many of our own um, Oh, my goodness. We... People are going to, like, start writing in and say, like, you guys really should wash your hands more. <laughs> okay. My fourth key point, very short, dysentery. Dysentery is overwhelmingly bacterial. 
certainly, you know, as a good internist, you should say, hmm, let me think about other causes of acute blood parectum. But if it's really diarrheal stool, especially with other infectious symptoms, it's going to uh, be bacterial. Uh, these most likely require treatment. Um, though the Infectious Disease Society of America, the IDSA, has actually recently changed their guidelines. I've always sort of routinely see a patient with dysentery, I'm going to give them empiric antibiotics. The IDSA now is recommending that if people are, are pretty well, right, um, that if they're not sick, if they're not having high fevers, a lot of abdominal pain, that you test them, you do a stool panel, um, and you don't treat them initially, because even that mostly gets better, and they don't want us to throw antibiotics at everything. And just for clarity, when you say dysentery, what you really mean is bloody diarrhea, Absolutely. correct? Absolutely. I mean, I think it's reasonable with the GI panels now because they often come back in a day. I would say in the days where we had to get stool cultures, which often took three to five days to get back, I'd have been reticent to wait on culture data to do that. What are you laughing about? I'm laughing at it because as I was saying that and I was like, wow, Scott's going to be so nervous about not treating someone with bloody diarrhea that he's not going to be able to keep his mouth shut. That is true. I am. Okay. Okay. Fifth and final key point. So... Don't get it, and I sort of mentioned this before, but don't get obsessed uh, about the diagnosis and treatment of this. Early on, you can really wait um, because most people get better. And I feel like when I'm working in our urgent care, you know, the cut point is usually four days. And a lot of people come in sort of before four days with diarrhea. And I feel like most of what I'm doing with those people is sort of making them feel like they haven't wasted their time coming in, you know, because I'm mostly going to say, Take care of yourself. Um, you know, make sure you keep hydrated. Give it some time. It's going to get better. Um, the things that I really think about upfront with those people is: is this a non-infectious diarrhea that I want to get into the diagnosis on? Was this person recently hospitalized, had antibiotics on a PPI where maybe C diff would be higher up, right? Right. right. Where I think about testing earlier. And then again, do they have dysentery? In which case, I'm going to do a stool panel right off the bat. And maybe I'll empirically treat them if they're looking bad or maybe if, you know, you're nearby. So the key question I have for you is, are you checking orthostatics on those patients? <laughs> we retired the bell, but I would ring the bell. Um, yeah, I, uh, of course. I mean, I think anybody who sounds like they're having enough diarrhea, and especially people who are feeling bad enough that they're also not hydrating well, um, you should certainly see. And you know, if you're in an urgent care, you know, giving people a liter of LR often makes them feel so much better. It's so true. Very um, dehydrated people feel horrible. Yeah. And just hydrating people makes them much better. And as a matter of fact, we should at some point talk on what that hydration sort of process sure. is, what we should be giving them. Sure. So um, before we do that, though, let's go back to our case. So how did you do? What happened? Um, so I thought I had norovirus. I went home that Wednesday after doing the exam review and I took it easy. I felt a little bit better the next day, but then things didn't really improve. Um, I continued with the diarrhea, six, seven, eight bowel movements a day. I continued to be incredibly tired. Um, so I think on like that following Monday, I think I like finished work, went home and took a nap before dinner. Okay. So this is six days later. This is six days later. And so I went to see my doctor on day seven. Well, can I, I interject what I would do now? Yeah, sure. That's what I was going to say. I was going to say, so suppose I went to you on day seven. <laughs> what you, would you, Dr. Stern, do for me? 
I would now do a GI panel. Really, would you? I would, I would. I want to know for sure. Um, it doesn't sound like, it sounds like you're at low risk for C. diff, but Salmonella, Shigella, Campylobacter are all really in play now. I'd ask you what you've been eating because, um, you know, if you've, a common mistake patients make, not you, of course, Dr. Sifu, but a common mistake that others might make is as soon as they feel better, they increase their diet and add lactose back into it. And we often don't digest lactose well after gastroenteritis yeah. and then the diarrhea recurs. But I'm sure that wasn't the case for you. So that's what I would be doing at this point. Would you like to put your nickel down on a, on a bacteria that gets turned up on my stool panel? Yes. So I'll put my nickel on salmonella. Okay. Non-typhi. C. diff. C. diff? I know. Unbelievable. Huh? What? Yeah. Um, no idea why. Obviously, I know why. You know, I'm on gen, the general medicine service all the time. I'm certainly colonized. Oh, my goodness. And I actually wondered, and I talked to one of our infectious disease specialists, if I actually had norovirus because it was such an acute onset. Um, and that maybe that sort of changed my bowel flora. She was like, absolutely not. We see this. This has C. diff can present. And it was interesting to me because... I realized that if I was, you know, not a robust, healthy 50-year-old, but like a somewhat frail 80-year-old with pneumonia, like this could have killed me. You know, I was that sick with it. Wow. It's, I, I loved your comment on lactose intolerance because the funny thing about this case is, so I get on Vank, I get pretty much better immediately. We go away for, you know, the winter holidays. I feel fine. I'm obsessive about cleaning everything in the house. And three days back to work, I started having diarrhea again. I was like, what the hell is this? I talked to my doctor again, and he immediately said like, so what are you eating? I was like, well, I'm back to work, so I'm eating my yogurt every day. And he's like, and there you go. Um, so I, I, I overestimated you. <laughs> you did. You did. <laughs> I've admitted already missing, what, three diagnoses in this, in this round. We're not very good at diagnosing ourselves, I have to say. No. Okay. What's the classic, a, right. a doctor who has a... Who treats, who treats himself as a fool for a patient. Right. And yeah, there's a whole bunch of those, yeah. but that's close enough. Right. Okay. All right. So having done that, that's a very fun case. I'm glad that you're okay. Uh, we should now go on and let's talk about fingerprints, common misconceptions, your favorite pet peeves, and other random pearls of knowledge. Adam, fingerprints. No. No? There are no None? fingerprints. Okay. There we go. <laughs> All right. So, so uh, what about common misconceptions? Uh, so I think my common misconception, and we've mentioned it a little bit a couple of times, is lactose intolerance. Um, I have a lot of people who come in, you know, they have diarrhea, I get a good history, um, and I really think it's lactose intolerance. And I really think that because it's sort of been maybe actually a subacute onset, it's a change in bowel habits, I get their history, and there's someone who is getting a lot of milk products in. And when I say that, they always push back on me. And they're like, I'm not lactose intolerant. You know, I have friends who are lactose intolerant, but I've always eaten milk. Um, and the fact is, is that all of us lose lactase activity as we age. And certainly some groups, you know, Asian, African descent, Southern European, lose it quickly and become um, lactose intolerant. But even people who, you know, have robust lactase activity, as they get older, it gets less and less. And so usually with those people, I say, okay, maybe I'm wrong, but just give me two weeks where you really, truly cut out all dairy products. And overwhelmingly, those people are like, I'm embarrassed. 
you know, you're right. Well, the other thing that people don't appreciate is it often depends on how much lactose you take in. So you might get by with a little milk in your cereal, but you have ice cream for dinner, which has, you know, after dinner, which has a lot of lactose in it. And all of a sudden you have diarrhea. So interestingly, the, the, if, if you compare, um, um, you know, equal servings, low fat dairy is actually the worst because if you think about high fat dairy, you know, a good pint of Ben and Jerry's ice cream, you know, has so much fat in it that that delays gastric emptying, right? right. That's why we stay right. so full. And so it sort of delivers that lactose slowly to the small bowel. Um, but we're getting really personal. The thing that kills me is on Fridays, I often bring a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And I love to have that with like a bottle of skim milk or 1%. And that kills me. So we have to switch you to whole milk. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> okay. All right. So my misconception is many people, many clinicians feel that um, all bacterial gastroenteritis is bloody. And that's just not true. Actually, if you look at the data of bacterial gastroenteritis, whether it's Salmonella, Shigella, or Campylobacter, only 34 to 54% of those patients present with bloody diarrhea. So the majority of folks who have bacterial gastroenteritis actually don't have bloody diarrhea. Now, we don't care often that we miss them. But the reason I make that point is if you have a patient who has a high fever and is very sick and has watery diarrhea, it's absolutely wrong to say, well, I'm sure it's viral because it's not bloody. But it's, I hear this all the time from folks. Right. That's one of those things that I can only respond with yes. <laughs> yes. Okay, good. All right. I think you have another one. I do. I do. And this is a little bit in the weeds, but a lot of people think about typhoid and think about typhoid being a diarrheal illness because it's caused by Salmonella species. Remember that typhoid is referred to as enteric fever for a reason. Okay. It is a febrile illness. Now it's caused by four Salmonella species, you know, the paratyphes and the Salmonella cholerasuis. But primary symptoms are really fever and abdominal pain. And actually, you know, when you look at kind of the, the case series, about half the people with typhoid fever actually have constipation. So especially in travelers, returning travelers, uh, you know, with uh, sort of febrile illnesses that they come back from abroad, you got to think about typhoid as a cause. Well, as a matter of fact, I was talking to our ID folks years ago, and they said any traveler from a, especially from a tropical area that comes back who has fever, it's malaria and typhoid until yeah. proven otherwise. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So uh, let's go on to pet peeves. Um, so my pet peeve is the hesitancy to give anti-diarrheal medications. So, you know, you got someone, they come into urgent care, they're fine. They don't have risk factors for C. diff. And they're, they're miserable, though. They're like going to the bathroom four or five, six times a day. And you want to help that person, you know, give them fluid if they need fluid, you know, give them an antiemetic if, if they've got a lot of nausea. And if they're having a diarrhea, you know, give them an antidiarrheal. Like, why torture the person? Because you think like that one in 15 million people are going to get toxic megacolon. Good. Well, your pet peeve is not giving antidiarrheals. And classic to our podcast, mine is giving antidiarrheals. So the other side of this coin is you do want to do it with at least thinking. So I certainly agree with you. And the person who's well with what looks like a viral gastroenteritis, it's totally appropriate. If you had a sick patient who you thought had bacterial gastroenteritis or C. diff, that's when you shouldn't. Uh, so there you have it. We agree to have different sides of this perspective. So the coin would actually have my face on one side and it would say empathy. And if you turn the coin over, it would have your face and it would say, I don't know. It would say thoughtful, wise, careful. <laughs> All right. So 
<laughs> Let's go into clinical pearls. Why, do, why don't you start us off with the clinical pearls? Well, um, I'm just going to uh, emphasize something about lactose um, intolerance that probably came through in what we were saying, but maybe not, is that lactose intolerance often follows the acute gastroenteritis. So even patients who haven't had problems before can get it afterwards. I always caution my patients during the diarrhea illness, as you're getting better, don't do this. Don't go out for a cheeseburger and a shake when you're done because they're hungry and they often overeat and they eat terrible things. Cool. I had a GI pathologist actually when I was in uh, residency who we had a patient, I can't really remember the case, but it was someone with a bad um, bacterial gastroenteritis. There was something confusing about the case. Actually went to EGD, had a small bowel biopsy and we went down to see the slides and it was really cool because you could see like total obliteration of the brush border um, just from the infection. And the pathologist at the time was like, you know, this is kind of the pathologic equivalence of, of why you get lactose intolerant. You sort of lost right. all that absorptive capacity. Right, exactly. Lactase is right on that brush border. Is that right? Yes. Okay, um, so I believe you have other clinical pearls for us. Yeah, so my clinical pearls are just a little bit about traveler's diarrhea. You know, we as doctors, we sort of don't treat that much traveler's diarrhea. Our role is mostly to counsel people before they go away to prevent it. And I guess maybe to um, empathically listen to their stories after they come back. So the few things that I always you know, point out to people uh, for preventing uh, traveler's diarrhea, make sure you're drinking clean water, boil, filtered, bottled, um, you know, purified, whatever all works. Uh, if people are at high risk and we're in high risk areas, using bismuth before meals, a couple of Pepto-Bismol before meals, actually decreases the risk of traveler's diarrhea by about a third. Um, and gastric acidity is important. So if you have someone you know, who's on a PPI because they get a little bit of heartburn, have them hold the PPI. Um, obviously, if they're on it because they're healing a gastric ulcer, they should keep taking their PPI. And then the mistakes I tell people to watch out for, you know, a lot of people are really good about not drinking um, risky water, but yet they're having ice or mixed drinks. And I've certainly bought bottled water in some places and realized that like, this isn't bottled water. This is a bottle refilled with tap water. Um, there's some foods that are basically always dangerous. You know, like lettuce is like always, you know, going to be washed with local water. So that's not something you should have. Um, I love to eat street food when I'm abroad, but you should be careful. It should be stuff which is like being, you know, fried in front of you. It shouldn't be something which is sitting around. Fruit is fine as long as you're peeling it. If you're buying like peeled oranges on the street, not a good idea. And then there's a spectacular article in Annals of Internal Medicine, probably about 10 years ago now, where um, the researchers actually went to restaurants and like with Petri dishes and basically just plated the tabletop sauces, you know, the sauces that were like sitting on the table in little dishes. And the percent of those which grew enteric pathogens was just horrifying. Um, so you may want to stay away from those. That's really scary. Yeah. I'd say the other mistake um, people make is brushing their teeth. Oh, yeah. So, you know, when I brush my teeth when I'm abroad, I use bottled water to do that rather yeah. than tap water. Yeah, yeah. And try to keep my mouth shut in the shower, which cuts down on the singing, but that's okay. You never keep your mouth shut. <laughs> All right. So my clinical pearl actually would say there's two of them I want to comment on. So first I've already mentioned, which is high fever should really make you think about bacterial gastroenteritis because the viral pathogens really don't do that. So, you know, hundreds, okay, but you start getting 102, 103, it's most likely bacterial. 
And um, before we leave this, I just want to touch base on hydration information for patients. Oh, good point. So it turns out that when people are dehydrated, a couple of things. One, water isn't all that well absorbed. Um, water is better absorbed with ions in it, like salt. But it turns out even that is better absorbed if there's a carbohydrate moiety with it. So, you know, Gatorade and Pedialyte and things like that are helpful not only because they give the salt, but the starch in there helps promote because there's co-transporters actually use the glucose with the sodium in the water to get it all across. It's actually better, though, to use rice and noodles rather than Pedialyte's and Gatorade because those have high osmolarities and actually draw fluid into the bowel before it can get reabsorbed, whereas chicken noodle soup is kind of the perfect fit because it's a complex carbohydrate, not a lot of osmolarity, a lot of salt. So turns out that my ethnic heritage would say that what we're eating is just fine. Where do you come down on matzo ball soup? Uh, that's even better because it's hard to beat matzo ball soup, frankly, <laughs> now that we're in Passover. <laughs> For anything, right? Right. Um, yeah, the one thing, I guess, um, this isn't really pushing back, um, just to change it a little bit. You know, a lot of people get obsessed with like, oh, this person should have oral rehydration solution. You know, generally in the United States, we're not dealing with cholera, right? Right. Um, the most important thing is that people are getting something into them. And I usually tell people, Pretty much what you said, you know, something with solute um, right. and whatever, you know, and, and enjoy it, you know, have some have some pretzels with your water. if you're gonna Right, it's one of the few times you can say have salt. Yeah. Um, okay, so we hope that you found this episode of the Symptom to Diagnosis podcast, S2D, useful and a bit enjoyable. As a reminder, our textbook, Symptoms Diagnosis and Evidence-Based Guide, takes a much deeper dive into how to think about and reason through the diagnosis of medical presentations. The book is available in print, on your handheld device, and in fully searchable mode via the Access Medicine website, available worldwide from McGraw-Hill. Scott, I actually had a couple of people talk to me recently about the Kindle version of S2D, um, which people like. I have seen it on the iPhone. It works quite well. Great. Um, and a reminder, the music for this, the S2D podcast, is courtesy of Dr. Malin Martinez. Mm-hmm.